The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I'd like to share with you three lessons just right off the bat that I learned from Hurricane Irma. Maybe some of you learned these lessons as well. The first lesson is I'm not a very nice person when you take electricity out of the mix. Anyone else learned that, that lesson earlier this week? Um, Sunday morning, early in the morning, I'm lying in my bed and the power starts flickering on and off and this thought just hits me like a bolt of lightning and I realize if I don't get out of bed immediately and run to the kitchen, I will not be able to have a cup of coffee today. So I have one of those Keurig machines, leapt out of my bed, ran to the kitchen, I'm fumbling with the coffee mug, I get it, I put it under the Keurig, and I'm willing the power to stay on as each drop, the cup gets about halfway full, and I lose power for three and a half days. And I savored every drop of that coffee, okay? Lesson number one, I've learned I'm not a very nice person uh, when I lose power. Um, for a couple days, I, I didn't realize how dependent I was on electricity. Um, lesson number two, I've learned that if you are locked in your house for the duration of a hurricane with your extended family, it may be a hurricane one or two, category one or two outside, and a category six situation inside. Anyone learned that lesson this past week? Okay, yes. There may have been moments when I thought, you know, actually I might survive better strapped to the outside of my house. I'm just gonna take my chances with the hurricane, actually. Okay, so some lessons I've learned, but on three, and this is a little bit more of a serious note. Um, you know, many of us have lived down here for a long time, or maybe you're like me, you grew up down here, and so we all have our, our hurricane stories. And, um, you know, for most of Dade and Broward County, for most of our, our home, you know, we, we experienced primarily Category 1 winds with a few gusts beyond that. And it was a sobering reminder for me of what just a Category 1 can do. And a reminder of how fragile we really are and that a, a Category 1 hurricane winds can hit us and can cripple us as a community for a week or more, and some, some areas still not fully restored and re fully rebuilt, just here in, in our home. And that, just, that realization just brought another thought, and I'm sure some of you have had some similar thoughts. I, I realized, okay, that's what we experienced, but it made me think back to some of the advisories that we had gotten um, earlier in that week. And I don't know if you remember seeing this particular advisory. It was Thursday morning. Here, go ahead and show up on the screen. Do you remember when this was the, the, the track of the hurricane? Where it was coming straight through Miami. It wasn't cutting across like we've had with other hurricanes in our history. It was just going to run right up the whole, the whole range of, of South Florida, targeting Miami. And the winds were projected to be a maximum wind of 150 miles an hour and wind gusts up to 185 miles an hour. And that projection brought the wind speeds in the range of Hurricane Andrew. And the, that, that day, um, an article was written, it was released the next day, Friday morning, an article was written by Time Magazine, 
where they were starting to compare this upcoming massive hurricane targeting South Florida, targeting our home, and they started the comparisons of Hurricane Andrew and Hurricane Irma. And I'm sure you all have been a part of those discussions and watched the, that dialogue. But this, on, as of Friday morning, this was, that was the path, still was pretty close to that. And here's what Time Magazine was saying. They were estimating, as Hurricane Irma stood at that point, to compare it to Andrew, they said that it had five times the destructive potential as Hurricane Andrew. And one of the reasons it gave for that could be kind of summed up in, in this satellite image where they overlay the two storms. Check this out. Maybe you've seen this. Some of you have probably seen these comparisons. You see Hurricane Andrew, that tight hurricane, but you see how massive Hurricane Irma was. That wasn't going to blow across. It was just going to go right through all of South Florida. And so, you know what? We have a lot to give thanks for today. We have a lot to stop and recognize that, man, Lord, at moments like this, phrases like it could have been a lot worse seem pretty hollow and like an understatement. We have a lot to give thanks for today. And it's appropriate for us to stop as a church, as God's people, and, and give him praise and thanks for what he did. But it's also important for us to wrestle with certain questions. And I don't know, if you're like me, maybe you've had these questions on your mind. Uh, okay, God, you heard our prayers. We were all fervently praying, and you heard our prayers. But how does this work? Because people in the islands and the Caribbean and people in the Keys and people on the west coast of Florida, like, we're, we're not more godly. We're not more deserving. We didn't pray more anymore. We didn't pray anymore fervently. So God, how does this work? How does it work with answered prayers and how, do we, how are we supposed to respond in this moment? We, we, we know we're supposed to give praise and thanks, but we have these other questions about how we're supposed to reconcile on a Sunday like today. And I think we've got to take advantage of this moment and wrestle with that question so that we can stand on those answers with more stability for, no matter, for whatever comes in the future, no matter what it is. We're going to look at a story in the Old Testament that I believe is one of the most magnificent stories in the entire Old Testament. It's out of Daniel chapter 3. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, if you'd open to Daniel chapter 3. Here's the setting for the story. It takes place in ancient Babylon. At this point in history, this is probably about 550 years before the time of Jesus Christ. And at this point, Babylon is the superpower. It's in the, the height of their influence. The king is a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He's arguably the most powerful man in the world. He rules over an empire that stretches most of the known world at this time. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar is the king. And this story primarily takes place in Nebuchadnezzar's courts. Let's look at what happens in Daniel chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura and the province of Babylon. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the pipe, the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, so here is the context for the story. King Nebuchadnezzar, He's ruling most of the known world. He is a narcissistic megalomaniac. And he has ultimate power, which is a really bad combination. He sets up a golden image. We don't exactly know what the image is. It's um, 90 feet tall, roughly 90 feet tall. It says it's nine feet wide, so it's probably some kind of pillar. Maybe it represents a god. Maybe it represents him. But it's a golden image And he's called all of his government officials from all over the empire to come for the dedication of this image. So these are people from all different regions, languages, former kingdoms that he's conquered. They all show up and they say, here's the deal. There's this whole orchestra set up. They're going to start playing music. The moment you hear this music playing, you are to fall down on your face in worship to this image. If you don't, you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, that's not a metaphor for something. There's an actual burning furnace that they will be executed in. In this time period, the Babylonians and even their predecessors, even more so the Assyrians, but the Babylonians were known for their creativity in torture. They would torturously execute people in such grisly ways to strike fear in surrounding kingdoms so when they came marching, people would just surrender. And so they were known for torturing people in in ways that are really horrifying. So being thrown in a fiery furnace, that's nothing for what they're capable of doing. What is interesting is that particular form of execution is pretty rare for the Babylonians. And so historians and scholars have puzzled over what's, what's the deal here. And probably the connection is we forged this god, this idol, we forged the metal in this furnace if you don't bow down and worship it, we will throw you in that furnace. So you'll basically be consumed by the God itself or be offered as a sacrifice to that God. Maybe something like that is going on here. Either way, all of these people from all over the world, all the government officials pretty much have this ultimatum. Bow down and worship or you'll be thrown in the furnace. Now, if you know the moment in history that we're talking, you know there's already a tension that's been built up. 
in the story of the Old Testament, in the story of the book of Daniel, here's where we're at in history. Jerusalem has been sacked. It's been destroyed. It's in rubble. The temple, the palace, the walls, it's in rubble. Most of the people have been carried back to Babylon. They're living in Babylon. And what the Babylonians would do is they'd take the cream of the crop, the best of the best, and they would take them, bring them into the palace, into the court, indoctrinate them into the Babylonian ways and philosophy and doctrines and theology. They would indoctrinate them and then put them into government officials so they could get the best of the world. And the story of Daniel is that there's this group of young men that are faithful Jewish believers in the one true God. And they're learning how do we, na- how do we possibly navigate in this court? So as you're going through the story of Daniel, you already know that there's going to be a group of guys that are going to have to struggle. What do we do at this moment? So here's how this plays out. Verse 8. Look up and see what happens. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now watch this. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So they set up the the idol. All the government officials come, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these faithful Jewish young men. This whole orchestra plays. Everyone bows down but three. Some of them come to the king and say, did you hear about these three men? They didn't didn't obey you. You know what you said. You got to throw them in in a fiery furnace. And notice Nebuchadnezzar, he's not like, oh yeah, I like those guys. No, he's furious. And he drags Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in front of him. And he says, is is this true? I'm going to give you one last chance. And if you do not bow down, you are going into the fiery furnace immediately. Okay, if you've heard this story before, I want you to forget that you've heard this story before. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You work for a megalomaniac narcissist so if you're like, oh, how'd you know? Because I actually do work for a megalomaniac narcissist. No, I'm talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They work for a megalomaniac narcissist, okay? And they, who has ultimate power and likes to torture people. So they live in constant fear. 
They're constantly trying to stay under the radar, not get him mad, do their thing, and just hope that one day they don't make him mad and get killed. But he's furious at them, draws them in and say, here it is, now or never, bow or immediately, within moments, you will be in the fiery furnace. Like, what are you thinking at that point? You're starting to do the math, the furnace math. How many seconds of horrifying torture would I experience? Like, incinerating, burning, and melting of my body before I die. That's the furnace math you're doing. Like, how long will I survive in the flames? Like, how much horror and terrorizing agony am I about to experience before I'm put out of my misery? And I wonder if, like, at that point, your stomach is just dropping. Like, your waves of nausea are coming over you. The color is draining from your face. Your knees feel weak. You're lightheaded. You might even pass out, and you're just standing there uh, contemplating the agonizing torture that is immediately awaiting you. You're saying, this is the day. It doesn't matter how I left my home. It doesn't matter what friends or family I said goodbye to. Like, I, I might be dead this day. This might be the end. And I wonder if like immediately you're, you're starting to think thoughts like this. Okay, what do I know about God? I mean, everything I, I learned as a good Jewish boy is that, you know, God, he, he's patient and slow to anger. He's long-suffering and he's, he's constantly abounding in steadfast love. So uh, he'll forgive me. I mean, I just bow real quick. I mean, it's just one time. I mean, he knows I love him. I, I mean, he knows my heart. You know, my knees may bow, my face may bow, but that's just my body. My heart is honest to him. I mean, I'm, I'm just, he knows I have no options. It's that or die, right? I mean, he knows. I mean, after all, he put me in this court, okay? He obviously has me here to do something powerful. I can't do those things if I'm dead. Or maybe, you know what? Let, let me just say yes and bow and just work it out theologically later. I mean, what types of things are you starting to think? I mean, enter into that moment. What do you say to a furious tyrant dictator that's capable of doing anything he wants to you? Well, here's what they said. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Can I translate that for you? This really isn't a much of a conversation, king. Fire it up. Light the fires. Let's see what happens. Do you notice Nebuchadnezzar, he says, he doesn't say, let's have a little contest to see if my God or your God's more powerful. He says, let's see what, who, what God could possibly save you out of my hands. This is a contest between Nebuchadnezzar and their God, the one true living God. And they say, this really isn't much of a contest. We don't even have to tell you. We don't have to debate. Let's do this. Throw us in the furnace and you'll see. Let's have a go. Let's see what happens in this contest, in this little contest that you've thrown out. And here's what I love. Did you notice that it says Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're in unison in this answer. 
It's not like Shadrach's like, okay, Meshach, simmer down, okay? Like, <laughs> let's not make him angry, okay? Let's talk about this a little bit. No, they're all like, it, it's really simple. There's nothing you can do that's going to get us to bow down to your God. You want to know who can save us out of your hands? It's our God. And if you'd like to see a demonstration, throw us in there. Let's do it. Let's see how the king responds. I'll just tell you, he's not happy. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks with their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent... And the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. He's furious. He says, heat it up to its fullest potential. Like, as hot as it can go, get the strongest men, bind them in straps, throw them in. They're walking up probably to this furnace in its own little building. These men throw them in. As they're falling in, the last sound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hear is the blood-curdling screams of the soldiers who are taking them up because they're melting. And they fall down into the flames. And then this happens. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Do you know what's happening here? He's like, what? We threw three guys in there. They're bound up. They're, they're walking around. Wait, I see four. Did we throw three guys? Because I see four guys in there. And then he says this, and he's got some botched theology, okay? He says, he looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar, you're close. It's not a son of the gods. It's the son of God. And he's standing in the fire with these three men. Do you realize what this means, right? This means 550 years before Jesus Christ the pre-incarnate eternal son of God appears on planet earth in the form of a baby to grow up, to offer himself on the cross to pay for the sins of humanity before he dies and rises again, winning our salvation for eternity. 550 years before that, he makes a special trip into Babylon to show up in the furnace alongside these faithful young men. They're walking around, they look and they see this guy and he says, hey guys, Thought I'd join the party. Do you hear what this means? Do you understand what this is saying about the one that you serve? That means that these three men, with all of their swagger and their bravado and all of their confidence, not in themselves, but in their God, they say, put them to the test. Throw us in the furnace. And God's like, that's the kind of party I want to be a part of. I'm going to have these guys back. Does this make you want to clap and cheer a little bit? This is the kind of God that you serve. He's the kind of God that when you go through a storm or go through a fiery furnace, he says, 
I don't want to be a part of that. I'm going to walk through it with you. That's the kind of God you have, the kind of God that makes a special moment to show up and be there in the midst with you. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar, you saw four. Here's how it wraps up. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their head was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. That's not a metaphor. And their houses laid in ruins, for there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Yeah, I think you would do that probably after that circumstance. Do you see how God arranged this? All of the rulers are standing there, all of the government officials. And Nebuchadnezzar, don't miss some of these details. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. Why? He can't send anyone to go get them. They'll burn up again. They've got to come out. And did you notice he sees four? Did you notice he only calls three of them out? That's a good move, Nebuchadnezzar. You don't want to stand before that fourth guy. He calls the three of them out. All of the rulers stand around him and they they take notice. There's not a hair on their head that's singed. There's not the smell of smoke on their clothes. The only thing that burned up were the straps that that had bound them. And God has arranged a scenario where this king who wanted to throw down with the almighty God has to declare that he is the most high God and no one shall ever again speak against them. Only he can rescue. Incredible passage and a reminder that we serve a God who can rescue and walks through the fire with us. But you haven't seen, or we haven't talked about at least, the most profound part of this whole story. We read that, but we've got to revisit two verses that we read and it's part of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response. Can can you just hear this again? Look at this. I want to read 17 and 18. Notice something that they say. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, If this be so, our God whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But look at this next part. Do, Do you see those three words? Can you read those out loud? What does that say? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods 
or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, here's the most remarkable part. They're saying two things you can know for sure, Nebuchadnezzar. One, we're going to go in the furnace either way. Whether God rescues us or allows us to get burned down to the ground, we'll go in the, we're going to go in the furnace either way, part one. Number two, there's no way we're worshiping your gods. The rest we don't know, but those are the two things you can know. See, church, there's such an important moment. We're standing here at a moment like this when we've just experienced an incredible rescue. And in this moment, it's important to, yes, to absolutely thank you, Lord. We praise you. You've demonstrated your goodness. You can rescue us. But in this moment, this is the time to discuss the but-if-not scenario. We'll praise and thank him when, there's, when we've been rescued, and we should. But let's decide now what we're going to do in the but-if-not scenario. I have a good friend that um, we talk about stuff about God, and, and we have great discussions. He's real sharp. He thinks through things. We wrestle through things together. He'd, he'd say that he's probably an agnostic. You know, he, he believes in a God or that there's something out there, but doesn't really, not really sure about Jesus. He's not really sure what he believes about that. So we have good discussions. And he's told me one of the things that just, he bothers him the most about Christians. He says, I understand that Christians thank God and wins when good things happen, but I don't understand and it makes me mad and it bothers me when Christians thank God in the midst of losses and sufferings. He says, you know, I, I've seen like these, some of these really outspoken Christian athletes. He says, you know, everyone gives thanks to God when they win the Super Bowl. Everyone does. But every now and then you get this person that even in the midst of the loss, they're still giving praise to God. He says, it's not just confuses me. He says, it, it bothers me. It makes me mad. Like that doesn't make sense. It's illogical. It's stupid. And there's something that he's not understanding. It's one simple idea. Surrender. It's submission. Anyone can thank God when good things are happening. Anyone who views whatever that force out there as if, you know, God, you're, you're my genie and you heard my prayers. Good job. Thank you. you. You did the right thing. Clearly, you're doing your job because you did what I instructed you to do. That's not submission and surrender. Submission and surrender is truly refined. We see if we have submission and surrender by, by what are we willing to receive from his hand. Surrender and submission says, God, I will receive anything from your hand because I'm submitted to you. I'm surrendered to you. It doesn't mean I'm going to receive it like a robot, receive it unemotionally, receive it in a fake way, pretend that I'm not grieving, struggling, afraid, scared. But in the midst of that emotion and that hurt, I will say, God, ultimately though, I submit to you and I surrender to you and I am willing to receive good or bad from your hand, whatever you offer, because that's what submission and surrender is. That's what it means for you to be my God and for me to serve you, not you serve me. So how does that make sense? See, so often what we do is we, we take this idea of faith and our culture thinks 
thinks of faith like this. On this pole over here, this extreme, you've got evidence and facts and data and intellect and rational thinking. And over here, you have superstition, you have belief, wishful thinking, hopes, and faith. And you got to pick a lane. And that's just a complete misunderstanding of what faith is. That's not what faith is. Faith is not the, is, is not the jettison or the divorce of facts and, and evidence and intellect. It's the surrender of intellect. It's saying, yes, I hear all of that evidence and I hear all of those facts and I see all of that data and I see all that my senses can pick up, but I also know that it's intellectually savvy to know that my intellect could not possibly understand all the things of God, so I leave room beyond that for faith. It's not dismissing intellect, it's surrendering intellect and saying, I stand on this evidence and facts, but the rest I give way to faith. So in those but if not scenarios, what I do is I say, okay, God, I know you are good. I've seen evidence in my life. I've seen evidence of what's declared in your scripture, in your stories. You are good, I know that. And even though the facts and the data right now are making me question that, that's where my faith is picking up. So no matter what, I'm going to declare that you are good and that you are in control. So what happens when a hurricane like Irma comes through and some prayers seem like they're answered and some seem like they're not. Some parts are devastated and some parts are spared. All of God's children from all of those scenarios in unison link arms and say the same thing. You are good and we accept what comes from your hand. We say, God, we, we receive whatever you send, because we will surrender, we will submit. And so in this season where we have much to be grateful for, we say, God, thank you. And when that season comes, let's decide now, today. Let's decide when that's the but if not scenario, let's decide today. Will we rise up with God's people and say, God, we receive anything from your hand. We accept it because we submit to you. And we'll continue to declare that you're good. See, I don't even like, how do I even pray then? Well, how we pray is we, we join God and we join Jesus, what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was, before he was arrested and he suffered. He, he came before God and he said, God, is there any way this cup can pass from me? And he said, nevertheless, let your will be done. And we say, God, would you spare us Would you spare us in the oncoming storm? Because nevertheless, whatever you bring, we will accept. Church, can I ask you a question that comes out of the Old Testament? It's this moment where in the book of Joshua, Joshua looks at God's people and they ask this question. They say, well, today is a good day to ask this question. And he looks at his people and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can we just draw the line in the sand today? That today's a good day for that. Whether we're rescued or it's a but if not situation. Church, can I ask you a question? 
Today, choose who, who are you going to serve, regardless of the situation. Because the hurricane season's not over yet. And there's a tropical storm Lee and a tropical storm Maria percolating out there. And the hurricanes of your life are going to be always swirling. And let me ask you a question. Let's decide today, no matter what way the winds turn, who are you going to serve? Which one are you going to serve? Because we, we know who's going to be in the fire with us. We know the same one who's in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the same one who stood on the bow of a boat in a, in a storm that almost capsized it. They all should have been dead. And he stood up and he proved something for all time. The winds obey me. So let's decide. Choose this day. Who are you going to serve no matter what comes? No matter whether you get the, the health report you wanted or the one you were hoping you'd never hear, who are you going to serve? Whether you, you get fired or, or you get a raise and you get promoted, which one are you going to serve? Whether you get praised or you get persecuted, whether your losses or successes, whom will you serve? Let's decide this day. We've just had a great rescue and we praise you, God. But God, we are going to decide today, draw the line that no matter what comes, we are going to decide who are we going to serve? Because here's what I can tell you. As for me and my house, as for Roby and Rebecca and Scarlett and Nehemiah, as for our house, we are going to serve the Lord. Because we know he's going to walk through the fires and going to walk through the storms. And because we know this, you wonder if, if that fourth man in the fire, do you wonder if there's a picture there? These men get thrown down into these flames and they come back out. It's almost like their own death and resurrection, but the fourth man stays back. And I almost wonder if it's a picture he's saying, it's not my time yet though. There's fires I'm gonna go through. This is not my resurrection moment. That's going to take place in a little over 550 years where I'm going to come down to earth and face the fires of persecution and rejection and, and getting beaten and then getting crucified. And I'm going, to, I'm going to take all the sins of the world on me. And then in that moment, I will defeat death. I will rise out of the tomb. No one's going to come and get me. I'm going to come out of the tomb myself and defeat death for all time for all of those who put their faith in me. That will be my resurrection. And Christian, do you know that what you know what that means? That means no matter what fires or what storms you go through, you know deliverance no matter what is on the other side. Because we can say what Christians like the apostle Paul said is, you can't beat me now. Because of Jesus, because of his resurrection, if you leave me alive, I'm just going to serve Jesus. If you kill me, I'm just going to go be with Jesus, which is even better. Nothing can beat you, Christian. Because this is not even your home. They can take away, your house can blow away. South Florida can be flooded. Power can disappear. Your, your workplace can be destroyed. But if you have your faith in Jesus, you can say, I can't be beaten. Either way, I'm delivered. Either on this earth to serve Jesus or I go home to be with Jesus. So choose you this day. Who are you going to serve? Maybe we can draw that line in the sand today because maybe some of you are here and you're wrestling and you're saying, look, I'm a, I call myself a follower of Christ, but anyone can praise God and thank God when there's a rescue, but if I'm truly submitted, can I thank him and praise him in the but if not situation? 
Let's take a quiet moment here before the Lord. Can you all just take a second and just close your eyes and bow your heads and let's just take this moment before God. Christian, are you sitting there and maybe you're here saying, if I'm honest, I need to re-surrender myself to God. God, pray this in your heart, then just quietly between you and God, just a, a recommitment, a re-surrender. Say, God, I, what submission means is I accept anything out of your hand, out of faith that you're good, and faith that this isn't my home. So give me acceptance, joy, patience, hope some of you are there and you're saying look I'm realizing this is just not about following a religion it's about surrendering your life to God and so if that's you then today might be the day for you say look I don't have all the answers I don't understand but I know because of Jesus death and resurrection that means that I, I if I put my faith in him I'll be in heaven and I'll be saved and maybe today's the day where you say okay so I surrender and I submit to God for the first time And if that's you, just simply pray this prayer right there in your seat. Just lift this prayer to God, this prayer of salvation. Just say in your heart to God, God, I surrender. Submit. You're in control no matter what you send. Thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.